The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We're here this morning to study in the word of God. We are doing our Romans review. We are in Romans chapter 11. Remember, that's all part of a bigger section of Romans, Romans 9 through 11, chapters 9 through 11, talking about Israel. So this is all within the context of a discussion about Israel. So we are going to pick back up where we left off, and uh, we'll do that in just a moment. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. We do need to ensure that our hearts are prepared for the study of the Word of God, confessing sins if necessary, but certainly humbling ourselves so that we might be teachable, shall we pray. Most gracious and merciful and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather here at the church this morning. We ask that you would help us as we're considering the truth of your word, that you would help us to focus our attention on what it is that your word is teaching us this morning, that we can understand the principles of what comes from your precious word and understand how to make application of those principles, not only in our daily lives, but with regard to our, our view our, our view of the world. Everybody has something of a worldview, and your word helps us to have a worldview that is correct, objective, seeing things the way that we should. And this section in Romans 9 through 11 gives us a proper understanding of how we should view Israel. So we thank you for this and ask that you would help us to understand what we hear today and to be able to dwell on these things so that it dwells richly within our souls so that we might grow grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. All righty. If I remember the slide right, and I did, this is where we left off. Verse 11 of chapter 11, but verses 11 through 24, Gentiles grafted in. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall beyond recovery, did they? That's talking about Israel. Absolutely not. On the contrary, by means of their failure to believe, salvation has come to the Gentiles in order to make them jealous. Now, since their failure to believe is spiritual abundance for the people of the world and their loss is spiritual gain for the Gentiles, how much more spiritual abundance will there be when they are fully restored? But I'm speaking to you, the Gentiles, given that I am indeed an apostle of Gentiles, I take my ministry very seriously hopeful that I might move my kinsmen to jealousy and save some of them. For since their being set aside leads to the reconciliation of the people of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Let's look at some principles. Now, that's verses 11 through 15. We broke it down into a couple of sections here. Though Israel did indeed stumble over the stumbling stone when they rejected Jesus as the Christ, God still has plans for his chosen people. You know, that's been kind of a theme of this whole section, Right? So they stumbled over the stumbling stone. We, we understand that. They, uh, the Messiah came, and he came to his people, the Jewish people, and they rejected him, but God still has plans for them. The failures of individuals or entire people groups will never thwart God's Alpha to Omega plan. That's one thing we need to understand. Job 23.13 says, but he is unique, and who can turn him? And what his soul desires, that he does, right? So whatever God desires, that he does. And we are not going to stop that from happening. Job, what's that? Job 42, 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And that's, that's the reality. Isaiah 46, 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And that's the truth. About God, so we we see our we see individual failures, we see nations fail. We certainly have we can read about the uh, failure of Israel. We're observing, I believe, the failure of the United States of America before our very eyes. But uh, none of that's going to thwart God's plan. 
None of it will thwart God's plan. So even though Israel failed, God still has plans for them. During the church age, the stewardship has been extended to all Gentiles who believe in Jesus. And this makes the Jewish people jealous. Quite frankly, that's something that uh, is, a, is a poke to them, makes them jealous. Deuteronomy 32:21 says, They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people, and I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. It goes on from there. That's, well, by the way, there's a little bit of kind of almost sarcasm here, the idea of at least the Jewish people view, view us as foolish people, right? The foolish Gentiles. And yet we are part of the body of Christ just the same as any Jew who believes, right? And uh, that's a significant thing, and, and that makes the Jewish people jealous. Because they were the stewards, right? And now we are part of the stewardship. This blessing for believing Gentiles today is an example of how God works all things, even Israel's failure, together for good, Romans 8:28. Uh, and we know that all things work together to produce good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. So even Israel's failure, right, even that, even that failure on their part has been worked together for good. Right? That's what Paul is stating here, that that's been worked together for good. However, there will be an even greater spiritual abundance for all when God's plans for Israel have been fulfilled. That's, that's what Paul is stating here. Let's take a look at this in Micah 4, 1 through 5. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. We raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may... Walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. Which is, by the way, why I believe that, that what you have to talk about at the end of the millennium is a rebellion, an uprising rather than full-on war. Verse 4, each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make him make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. And by, the, by the way, that term, the Lord of hosts, is the Lord of the armies, if you will. Though all the peoples walk each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So this is what's to come. And can you even imagine for a second, you know, if, you know, during the millennial kingdom, Jesus himself is going to be on the throne in Jerusalem. So, you know, if you have a question about some particular doctrine you're not sure about, you don't have to ask your pastor. You could, <laughs> you know, who, know, who knows what it will be like, but if we imagined it today, you could just email your question to uh, askjesus.com, right, because, or .org or whatever it's going to be, right, and he, he would be there on the throne and he'd be able to answer your question definitively because he is the teacher, capital T, Jeremiah 3:15 through 18, then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. It shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land, declares the Lord. They will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord and, will not, and it will not come to mind, nor will they remember it, nor will they miss it, nor will it be made again. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord and all the nations will be gathered to it to Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. Nor will they walk anymore after the stubbornness of their evil heart. That's what's coming. Oh, verse 18. Sorry, I thought it was verse 17. In those days, the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel, and they will come together from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers as an inheritance. They're actually going to all come together and finally occupy the land that was promised. Paul's deep love for his kinsmen, we'll look at that in Romans 9, one through three prompted him to reach out to the Jewish people before fulfilling his given ministry to the Gentiles. And now, was that an act of rebellion? We can talk about that for just a minute, but let's look at this in Romans 9. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies together with me in the Holy Spirit that my sorrow is great and the grief in my heart is unceasing. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's how seriously he feels about it. That's how much love he has for them. If we look at Acts 13, 46 and 47, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first 
Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. The Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. But notice they were speaking to the Jews first in Acts 9.15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Now notice, going on verse 16, For I will show him how he must suffer for my name's sake. Notice the order of those things. The Gentiles, kings, the sons of Israel. So he certainly was supposed to have you know, a ministry to the sons of Israel, but the priority was put on Gentiles, right? He was supposed to be delivering the message to Gentiles, but Paul in his own ministry, you know, if you look at, if you look at, read the scriptures on it, what would happen? He would go into a place and rather than immediately go out and share the message with, you know, the multitude of Gentiles in a particular location, he would go to the synagogue first. And he would try to speak in the synagogue and try to persuade the Jewish people in the synagogue regarding Jesus being the Messiah. And, of course, some believed and some rejected. But then after he would spent his time preaching in the synagogues, then he would go out to the rest of the people. Well, that was you know, kind of in the opposite order. Now, was that rebellion? In, in a small way, yes, because his primary ministry was supposed to be to the Gentiles, but, I mean, he had such a heart for the Jewish people. And I don't think that, um, I guess the right way to say it is, that's probably not ideal. He's, if you think about the five lanes of the freeway, he was probably one lane off of the center lane there because he was going to talk to the Jews first, but I don't think he was dishonoring God through that because he was trying to lead his, his people to Christ as the, you know, to get them to understand Jesus was indeed the Messiah. His ministry to the Gentiles did not constitute an abandonment of the Jewish people because sharing the gospel with the Gentiles would ultimately bring some Jews to faith in Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, For though I, am free from all men, uh, though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became a Jew, so that I might win Jews. Well, he is a Jew, but you know what he means by this. So that I might win Jews to those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law to those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I may what might win those who are without law to the weak. I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel excuse me, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Now, don't misconstrue any of this. Uh, Paul was not suggesting that you, get in, you engage in sin in order to lead people to Christ. But what he's pointing out is that you kind of got to meet people where they are. That's a good way to say it. You have to meet people where they are. Uh, I, don't, I, I wouldn't suggest that if you want to save people... Uh, that go to a bordello, I wouldn't suggest that you go and hire a prostitute. Uh, I would suggest that you might just engage people that do that kind of thing at, at the level where they are. You're not, you don't have to sin in the process. Yes, sir. Yeah, I do think Paul went to some of those places. Like, for example, I think he, for example, he would ha- probably have hung out. This is from first Corinthians. I think he probably would have hung out outside the temple of Athena there in Corinth, and he would have talked to the people that were going in and out. You know, I don't know that he went in the temple necessarily, but I, I think he was right there talking with the people that were actively doing that sort of thing. The ministry, ministry of, this, uh, the ministry of reconciliation that Paul's talking about here has been granted to the church today. We have that ministry. We've looked at this verse many times, but it's good to see it uh, and remind ourselves of this. Therefore, from now on, we recognize No one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is to all of us, right, as part of the church, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. 
And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. Notice the change in language there. We beg you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. So that's talking to the ones who are not believers. First, I should have gone all the way through verse 21, which is good. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In the future stewardship of Israel, the ministry of reconciliation will be granted to Israel, all of Israel, including the resurrected Old Testament saints. I believe that's going to, that's going to be, they're going to be part of that stewardship. Have you ever thought about that? Old Testament saints are going to be resurrected. They're going to be on the earth. Uh, and I believe, and now realize that stewardship of Israel actually begins even during the tribulation, right? Stewardship returns to Israel. So when I said including the resurrected Old Testament saints, I'm talking millennial kingdom now. And why you say, well, why would there be a ministry of reconciliation? Everybody's believers. Well, only at the beginning. Don't ever forget. There's people going to be born during the millennial kingdom. And they will be unbelievers until they are saved. Matthew 8:11 says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Is that the verse that I wanted? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Many will come from east and west and recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will cast out in the outer darkness. That goes on from there, the gnashing of the teeth. But the idea is that there's going to be, there will be Old Testament saints. Look what it says here in Daniel 12:13. But as for you, go your way to the end, then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Well, isn't that, I mean, if we just recently read Daniel, isn't that... Basically telling Daniel, you know what, you're going to be resurrected at the end of the age, and that's exactly what's going to happen. Uh, and he, in his own in his own book, uh, in his own writing, talked about the two resurrections: one resurrection to life, and the other one to death, basically. And that's the resurrection at the beginning of the millennial kingdom for the Old Testament saints, and then the resurrection at the end of the millennial kingdom uh, for the unbelievers to judgment. I think that's, uh, what is that, Daniel chapter 2? I think it is. Let's see. Maybe it's not. I don't remember. Let's see. Let me find it here. Oh, let's go back. I thought there was a. I thought it was talked about in Daniel. I know it was. Uh, Daniel, you guys should be able to tell me. One of you should be able to say, "Oh yeah, it's such and such." Um, all right, there's a. It's not Daniel twelve, is it? Might be. Yeah, it is. Daniel twelve. It says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So there's two resurrections, right? There's the awake. He calls it being awake. He doesn't call it a resurrection, but those who are asleep will awake. There's two resurrections mentioned there in Daniel chapter 12. We just don't find out until we get the book of Revelation that there's a thousand years in between. <laughs> you know, it sounds like they're one right after the other or at the same time, but it's not true. Ezekiel 37, 25 through 28, they will live on the land. Let me get that out of there. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Well, David, at the time of the writing of this, David is, has already died, right? But David's going to be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it will be an everlasting. By the way, why is David the prince? Jesus is the king, that's right. Uh, I will make a covenant of peace with them. Uh, it will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be, hang on. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. But the point of that passage was that David's going to be there. So he's going to have to be resurrected as an Old Testament saint in order to be there. All right. 
Next section of verses here. Since the first piece of dough is holy, the whole lump of dough is also. And since the root is holy, the branches are too. But since some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them and became partakers together with them of the rich root of the olive tree, stop being arrogant toward the natural branches. And given that you are arrogant, you ought to realize that it is not you who provides support for the root, but the root provides support for you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in, rightly so. But they were broken off for their unbelief, and you have standing by means of your faith. Stop being conceited, but instead show proper respect. For since God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Notice then the kindness and judicial strictness of God. Right? Both of those are part of who God is, right? The kindness and judicial strictness of God. To those who fell, judicial strictness, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off, and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. Now, realize we're talking to people groups. This is not directed at individual people. We're talking to the Gentiles, right? So if the Gentiles don't continue the way they should, then they're going to get cut off. They're not going to be grafted in. And then Israel, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For since you were cut off from what is by nature an, uh, a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches branches, excuse me, be grafted into their own olive tree? So what, what he's saying here is, look, you Gentiles, you've got a real blessing right now. Because you've been, you've been included in the blessing of Israel. You've been included in, right, we are spiritual descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're heirs of the promise by faith, right? But that doesn't mean we need to get arrogant about it. And you notice that's part, I think, what's happening in our world around us. There are plenty of Christians who are anti-Semitic. They've been taught wrong, but they are, yes, sir. Yeah, well, if you want to talk about the political spectrum, you're seeing conservatives that are becoming anti-Semitic. And you see, uh, it's interesting, it's really on the far end of the political spectrum either way, on the far left or the far right, you see anti-Semitism. All right, let's look at some principles. Paul's illustration using the first piece of dough was most likely based upon the first fruits offering of Israel in Numbers 15. 17 through 21, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land where I bring you there, then it shall be that when you eat of the food of the land, you shall lift up an offering to the Lord. Notice what it says here in verse 20, of the first of your dough, you shall lift up a cake as an offering and the offering of the threshing floor. So you shall lift it up from the first of your dough. You shall give to the Lord an offering throughout your generations. So that's the idea of the first fruits offering. And it's talking about the first of the dough. And that, that's exactly what Paul talks about here. Nehemiah 10:37. We will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine and the oil to the priests at the chamber of the house of our God and the tithe of our ground to the Levites. For the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the rural towns. By the way, it's a great argument against tithes. We are not under a tithe. We're not under the law. We're not under a tithe. Um, and I'm not saying against giving. Don't get me wrong. I'm talking about the idea of a tithe because uh, who, received, who gave and who received the tithe, the, uh, all the non-Levites in Israel gave the tithe and the Levites received the tithe. They didn't give it. Well, the Levites were the priests. We are all priests. So we are not giving the tithe. Now, giving is another story. There's a whole lot you can learn about that, but we're not under a tithe as Israel was. By the way, and their tithe was, if you really want to add it all up, it was not 10%, it was 23.3% or so, because 23 and a third, because they gave 10% plus 10% every year, and then they had another 10% they would give every three years. So that was, that's why it's 23 and a third. Ezekiel 44.30 says, The first of all the fruits of every kind and every contribution of every kind from all your contributions shall be for the priests and shall also give to the, excuse me, and you shall also give to the priests the first of your dough to cause a blessing 
to rest on your house. So the first of the dough is mentioned multiple times, and he uses that language in this passage, I think, referring back to that. As members of the church, we are to be a new lump and ought to appreciate those who came before us and provide examples from which we can learn. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened, for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Right? We're supposed to be an unleavened, clean, new lump of dough as part of our new birth in Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, this is a passage I like to turn to, 1 through 12 here, about how we can learn. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. If you, wanted to, if you ever wondered about all the things that they saw, the Shekinah glory, the cloud by day and the fire by night and all the other things that Israel had, if you ever wondered what those were, that was the pre-incarnate Christ, actually. Those were, those were Christophanies. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And it's kind of interesting when you read that, then you go on to verse 12. I didn't know if I had it in the, but look what, look what we get in verse 12. Therefore, let him, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall, right? You read all of that and, and everything, you think, well, if you, if you think you're standing, guess what? Look out, <laughs> look out. <laughs> Just as the first piece of dough and the lump make a good illustration of Israel's spiritual heritage, uh, so do the root and branches of a tree, as he talks about here. The branches of a tree Oh, they're very existent to the, root, to the root system. If you think about it, branches, if you take away the root system, the branches die. Israel is the foundation of the spiritual heritage of the church. Paul talked about that back in Romans 9, verses 4 and 5. Who are Israelites to whom belong the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises? Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? who is over all, who is God, who is blessed forever. Amen. In other words, it's no, it's no accident that Jesus is of the tribe, I mean, of, you know, of the people of Israel, of, of, from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of the tribe of Judah. There's, that's no accident, right? That's uh, God's design. And so the spiritual heritage for all of us, really for all believers, if you want to think about it, if, for all believers of all time, I mean, there's no way that, there's no way that, Adam and Eve could have known that the seed of the woman was going to be from a called out nation that God called out from among the people from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They would not have known that, but they were blessed. They were blessed in their own salvation because of the Jewish people who were going to come yet future. If you think about it, it makes that's who that's who the Christ is. He came from the Jewish people. And so their so great salvation that they had when they believed in the seed of the woman promise was, was because of the Jewish people. Their, their spiritual heritage is based upon Jesus being of the people of Israel and being the Messiah, the one who would die for all of us. So he's the foundation, I say, of the spiritual heritage of the church, but really for all, for all believers. In Paul's illustration of the olive tree, there are four types of branches and this is, it may not have been clear when we were reading through it, but here's what you have. It's four types of branches. First, you have natural branches that were broken off. That represents unbelieving Jews temporarily removed from their stewardship function, right? The idea that the natural branches were broken off. So right now, the Jewish people are not serving as stewards. They were broken off because of their unbelief, right? That's the natural branches. Then you have natural branches that were not broken off. Those represent Jews who have believed in Jesus and retain their stewardship function as part of the church. In other words, a Jewish person, even though the Jewish people as a nation are no longer stewards, 
if someone who's a Jew, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> if someone who is a Jew believes in Jesus right now, they're part of the stewardship today. So that's one of the natural branches that's not broken off because they're still serving as a steward. They're still feeding off the root system, aren't they? Yeah. Then you have wild branches. And as I look around this room, I can see some wild branches in this room. Wild branches that are grafted in, that represents Gentiles who have believed in Jesus and share in the stewardship function as part of the church. But then you have the natural branches that are grafted back in. That may confuse you, but the language of, see, the natural branches that were never broken off, that's Jews that believe today and are part of the stewardship. But the natural branches that are grafted back in, that represents Israel in the fullness of their restored stewardship that function be, being during the millennial kingdom. By the way, they will be stewards in the, in the tribulation, but the fullness of their stewardship takes place in the millennial kingdom. But the, if that's what you have, that's why you have to understand the different things, right? You have the natural branches that are broken off. That's the lost stewardship. The natural branches that remain, that's the Jews who believe today. Natural branches that are grafted back in, that's the, the restored stewardship. And the wild branches that are grafted in, that's us. Israel's unbelief should serve as a warning for us today. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 10 through 19. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That's a warning to believers, by the way. Because you can't fall away from the living God if you've never been there. You know what I'm saying? You can't fall away from something if you've never been there. That's a warning to believers. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him? When they had heard, indeed, did not the, all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? You see where I'm going, verse 19. So, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Right? That's the reason why they were not able to enter into the rest. It was because of their unbelief. So that whole faith thing, it, it applied back then, didn't it? We talk about the faith and how important faith is today. Well, faith was important back then. Right? The problem they had, the problem Israel had, was their unbelief. My goodness, and it was on display so rampantly, it was unbelievable. How, how, how long had they been free from Egypt before they started crying that they wanted to go back? It wasn't very long. I mean, yeah, I mean, it seems like it was hours, but I know it was more than a matter of days. They were already screaming to go back to Egypt. We had it better back then. Why did you bring us out of here? When God chooses not to spare something, it is worthy of our attention. So the idea of, uh, you know, if God, if God could spare something, but he does not do it, we should note that. That's something that we should pay attention. He didn't spare his own son. Think about that. In Romans 8:32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also together with him graciously give us all things right he didn't spare his own son now i mean when jesus was crying out father if it's possible take this cup from me yet not my will but yours be done what did the father do he went to the cross didn't he that was what he was supposed to do he didn't spare his own son he delivered him over for us all so he didn't spare his own son and we should that's something that's significant we should pay attention to that he didn't spare jerusalem ezekiel 7, 9, my eye will show no pity, nor will I spare. I will repay you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I, the Lord, do the smiting. And I love the word smite. Jeremiah 25, 29, for behold, I am beginning to work calamity in this city, which is called by my name. And shall you be completely free from punishment? You will not be free from punishment, for I'm summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. So he did not spare Jerusalem. He did not spare fallen angels in the, the pre-flood ah, pre world. Antediluvian. Easier to say, isn't it? Fallen angels in the pre-flood world. Second Peter 2, 4, and 5. 
For since God did not spare fallen angels who sinned, but instead, after placing them in captivity in Tartarus and pits of gloom, handed them over to judgment for which they are being held, and did not spare the antediluvian world, but did protect Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a cataclysmic flood upon the world of the ungodly. And that's exactly what happened. Right? It goes on from there, but you know, we studied that in Second Peter. That was an example of how, you know, because the cry is, why isn't God punishing those who deserve punishment? Why, why do I see people who are evil seeming to flourish? Why is it that you know, the godly people are not being blessed and so on and so forth? And Peter addresses that and says, God can take care of all of that. Don't you worry. Let me give you some examples of how he's done so in the past. <laughs> if he's done all of these things, if he rescued Lot, if he, put, if he took care of all those people with the flood, if he rescued Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah and all that, he can rescue the righteous and he can punish the unrighteous. And so that's what Peter is teaching there. If Israel's stewardship was taken away for their unbelief, we should be aware that the present stewardship can also be taken away. Ultimately, ultimately, <laughs> it's kind of a funny thing to think about. So the rapture, I think, is going to happen nanoseconds after the last person who believes and is part of the church, right? This last person believes, whoever that person is, they believe in Jesus and they're saved. And then whammo, the trumpet sounds, and here comes Jesus to get his, to get his bride. So the last thing that's going to happen, in my opinion, the last thing that's going to happen is someone's going to believe in Jesus. And yet, I think we can all agree from what we know from the scriptures that the end of the church is going to be characterized by apostasy. Right? That you're going to see that by the time we get to the end of the church, we're going to be in serious uh, apostasy around the world. The church is not going to be thriving either. That's, I think, see, I think that's a big part of it too. Not just, you know, that there's fewer and fewer believers, but the apostasy of the church itself, the horrible things, the rainbow flags that people are hanging up in churches and things like that. That's, I think that you're going to see that when you get to the end of it, it's going to be really, really negative in terms of that. And that's part of the reason that I think that's part of the reason that the, that the church comes to an end. As, as we see, every stewardship that we've had over the course of time and the stewardships, even the stewardships that are yet future, all of them in, if you will, in failure, including the church. And it's not because God's a failure. What it actually shows is quite the opposite. Because when we get to the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells, guess what? That's going to be successful. Why? Because God made it so, right? It's going to be successful because there's going to be nothing but righteousness. There's not going to be any, uh, any sin. There will be no uh, negative volition during that time, but it's because God brought it about. Every other stewardship where our volition was involved, what, it, what happened? We ended up with uh, negative results. We ended up ending in failure. So it, what's interesting, and this is hard for me to fully grasp, but you have to try to get your head around it, is that when, we, when, we are, when we're no longer in these bodies, when we're in our resurrection bodies, when we're here during the millennial kingdom, when we're there in the new heavens and the new earth, we still have volition but we won't make sinful choices. That's pretty cool if you think about it. We still have volition. And I like it to, to think it along this way. Let's see. Do, let's see. Uh, there's a, here I am. I'm in, I'm in the new heaven, right? We're in the new heaven time period. New heaven's a new earth. And there's three different Bible classes going on right now. Which one do I want to go to? Right? That's going to be the choices. That kind, that's the kind of choices you're going to have, right? And so it's not like you have, you're not, you're not going to make sinful choices. You're going to have choices, though. Volition is still active. If we become arrogant toward Israel because of their failures, we should recognize that whatever we have is by the grace of God. See, that's the thing we've got to remember. Uh, this is, I love this verse, as you know, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So if we get cocky toward the people of Israel and start thinking, well, you guys failed... Well, guess what? Everything we have is by grace, isn't it? Now, the church is not on under law, but under grace. And that's awesome, right? Romans 6, 14, for sin shall not have mastery over you for not under law, but under grace. But with that comes greater accountability. 
right? Since we're not under law, but we're under grace, we have an even greater accountability. Hebrews 10, 28 and 29. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? So there's a higher accountability. That's the point. How much severer punishment do you think today, right, will happen today? God is abundant in his loving kindness toward us, but he is also omniscient and will be strict in his administration of justice. So God is absolutely, if you, if you don't understand how abundant his loving kindness is toward us, then I recommend you kind of sit back and take a little tally of all the times you ignore God, you rebel against God, you do all these different things. And, you know, because God at that point in time could just say, okay, I've had enough of you, right? And you could be taken up, you could die to sin unto death right there. But he doesn't do that. He, he definitely extends his chesed, loving kindness toward us. He's also omniscient, Hebrews 4, uh, 12 and 13. We all, all, all of us are familiar with the verse 12, but verse 13 goes right with it. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. No creature. Not just believers. No creature, right, is hidden from his sight. But he is going to be strict in his administration of justice. Numbers 14, 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, therefore, since we have a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. And notice what it says in verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. That is a, that is a verse to be taken seriously. That speaks to what God can dish out. If God will prune individual branches of the vine, he will also certainly remove the grafted in branches of the olive tree, right? I mean, if this is, see, John 15 is speaking individual. This passage here is speaking about people groups. But here we have in John 15, 1 through 6, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. At every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that he may, it may bear more fruit. <coughs> now notice, this is all about spiritual productivity, the bearing of fruit. This is not about loss of life or salvation, right? He takes away every branch that does not bear fruit. He takes away every branch that bears fruit. He prunes it so that he may bear more fruit. I, I mean, I don't know if you've been pruned, but I've been pruned a few times. Uh, you have already... You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. That speaks to our salvation, right? You're already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them in the fire, and they are burned. And there's so many people who teach this so wrong. They teach that and say, oh, well, that's, that means you lose your salvation and you go to hell. No, that's not what that's talking about. You've got, you got to put it in the context. What, what does a vine dresser do? Right? Could be talking, by the way, could be talking about the sin unto death, potentially, right? Could be talking about the sin unto death, but that's not loss of salvation. You guys have taught, been taught that here. That believers who die to sin unto death, they go to heaven. It's just that God takes them out of this world in kind of a negative way, right? They die to sin unto death. But if you think about how a vine dresser works, what they're going to do is they're going to cut off branches that aren't bearing any fruit, and the ones that aren't bearing enough, they can prune them up so that they'll bear, bear more. But this is not talking about a loss of salvation. This is talking about fruit bearing. And think about that. If you're going along in your Christian life and you're not bearing any fruit for some lengthy period of time, the vine dresser may come and... and Cut you off, right? That may happen. And God will go ahead and take you to heaven at that point. Yeah, if you think about it, what happens, there's language in the scriptures that says we can actually lose rewards, right? And so when God takes us out and takes us to heaven, when we're in that place, he's doing so so we don't lose all of our rewards, right? So we don't end up at the 
at the Bema seat and find out that there's a big bonfire and there's this, we, look, we have to dig around on the ground for these little tiny pieces, right? He wants to preserve more than that. So that's a grace thing when he takes us out that way. Recognizing these things, spiritual believers should conduct themselves with fear. I think proper reverence or awe is, is appropriate. Uh, and be concerned about the failures of other believers within the church. And we'll talk about that here in just a minute. So 1 Peter 1.17 since you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in reverence during the time of your stay on earth. And that's why I was saying that word phobos can mean reverence, and I believe it does there. And concerned about the failure of other believers within the church, in Galatians 6.1 it says, Brethren, if any, if, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. The idea is we're supposed to we're supposed to help restore those who are struggling, right? That's the message. We're supposed to restore them. By the way, it says anyone, anyone, right? It doesn't matter who it is, whether you think that they should be restored or not. It's anyone. Uh, James 5, 19 and 20, my brethren, if, anyone, if any among you is led astray from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the straying of his way will save his soul from death. And that's not talking about eternal death. And we'll cover a multitude of sins, right? The idea is the, the idea of the, uh, if, I mean, if, if we're talking about an unbeliever here, right? Uh, an unbeliever, then that would be true. But look what it says in verse 19. If any among you is led astray from the truth, anyone among you, my brethren, right? That's talking about believers. So what are we talking about here? Saving a soul from death. That again would be the sin unto death kind of an idea, covering a multitude of sins. The rapture is indeed the blessed hope of the church, but that event will also constitute the end of the present stewardship, which, as I just mentioned earlier, as all previous stewardships have done, ends in failure. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3 says, uh, you know what? Hang on a second. I just added this this morning. I didn't link to it there because I didn't have it when I did that. Now we have our own translation of 1 Timothy since we finished it up last uh, last Sunday. But the Spirit clearly states that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying close attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, being led, misled by lying hypocrites, steered in their own consciences with a branding iron, branding iron, excuse me, who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, things which God cre has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Now, I did that whole section, but look what it says. In the later times, some will fall away from the faith. This is, we know this is going to happen. We know that this is promised us by God, and in later times, people are going to fall away from the faith. We see it happening today. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as thee. I didn't see on there that would be spending all their time on TikTok, but it could be, right? You could add that to the list. Uh, Revelation 3, 14 through 22, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. I know your deeds that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Again, some people twist that and say it's loss of salvation. That's not what's going on here. Because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy, I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Well, there's that's a just that's there's people right now. That's the truth, man. They they are rich. They become wealthy. They have done. They don't have a need of anything, and yet they are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They are. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. <clears throat> Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Now, this is in the context of this is this is in the context of this this message to the church at Laodicea, in particular to the pastor of the church 
when you get to verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. People use that all the time to give the gospel, but this is a fellowship passage. The idea of dining is a fellowship setting. Come into him and he will and will dine with him and he with me. That is a fellowship passage. Jesus basically is knocking knocking on you as a believer saying, all right, you can open the door and we'll have real fellowship. But right now we're not having any fellowship because you're, you're neither hot nor cold. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. And I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now you'll notice all throughout these verses in Revelation 2 and 3, it says, he who overcomes. Uh, who overcomes? Well, Jesus is the overcomer. He says so right there. I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Well, if I am in Christ and he overcame, then I'm an overcomer, right? I'm an overcomer if I'm in Christ. I overcome. Now, do I, do I exemplify that in my daily walk? Well, that's another question, isn't it? But positionally, I'm an overcomer. I'm already an overcomer. There's only one of those. If you read through all of those in Revelation 2 and 3, there's only one of them that has a stipulation. He who is an overcomer and, and goes on from there, and it talks about particular blessings for those that fulfill the rest of that. All right, that's perfect. We're going to stop right there. All Israel will be saved, verses 25 through 32. We will pick back up on that on Wednesday night. Wednesday night. Uh, hopefully we won't have weather that keeps us from being able to gather but we'll pick back up on Wednesday night. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the lessons today, the reminders that we have from your word about Israel and how they have not been cast away and they're never going to be restored. They will be grafted back in. They will have a stewardship in the future. We thank you for the reminder of our own position that we're blessed today to be part of the stewardship of the church, but we shouldn't get arrogant about that. And if we do get arrogant about it, then we need to repent, have a change of mind regarding the way we feel about that. If we become arrogant at all about our position that we have in your son, then we are completely clueless about grace. Uh, we need to understand the, the true meaning of grace, and we, under, we need to understand how everything we have is by grace. And we need to have a heart for the Jewish people. Instead of being arrogant towards them, we need to have a heart for them and try to share the gospel with them. And I thank you this lo that this local church has supported multiple ministries that have uh, an outreach to the Jewish people with the, the gospel message. So uh, we, we individually need to do that, but we as a church want to do that as well. But we thank you for the reminders of all these things. We thank you for the messages that your word delivers to us on a daily basis. If we spend time in your word, your word delivers the messages to us, important understanding to us every single day, and help us to continue to seek the truth in your word and to continue to stand up for that truth in this world that seems to be becoming darker and darker every single day. Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.